forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, director, and weekly blogger on my Patreon. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and scribbler. I scribble all over everything. But you have nice handwriting. Yes, it's a weird combination of script and not script. So some letters are in cursive and some are not. And so it's very, I don't know how I developed it. Like, yeah. it's my own language. I don't know how I chose that, like, all of my R's would be in script, but all of my T's would not. Like, why? Whatever works for you, baby. Have you ever had handwriting analysis? No. We should get someone on here to analyze our handwriting and then tell us what we're like. I don't think that's what handwriting analysis is. Yeah, it's like, are you the killer or not? They no, come isn't on. that just, like, analyzing if it's two handwritings are the same or not? It's not telling you about your personality. No, yes. There are people that can tell you about your personality from handwriting. Where'd you get this information? A profiler, like the FBI. They'll like look at your handwriting and be like, this is a white male. Melissa's looking this up because we don't believe you. It's true. You can profile what someone is, what someone's like by their handwriting. They'll be like, this S symbolizes that they were born in this time and that they grew up with strict parents. It's true. Okay. Then let's let's spend all of our savings and get our handwriting analyzed. One time, our friend, <laughs> uh, someone that we knew from BuzzFeed, went and got a massage. And this was like a person like doing like a spiritual massage and like did the massage. And then at the end said, are your parents divorced? And she was like, what? And they were divorced. And the masseuse was like, I could feel that they were divorced in your body. That's an easy <laughs> guess. Most parents are divorced. <laughs> But also, I will say, <laughs> Melissa has confirmed that you are correct about handwriting analysis. Yes. Wow. We should get someone on. Can you imagine okay. we, we get someone on and we don't tell them it's our handwriting and they go, this is the handwriting of a serial killer. <laughs> but see, that wouldn't affect me in any way because I know I'm not a serial killer. <laughs> but they, it would be, they would be telling you that you have the capacity. <laughs> Who doesn't? I don't know. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. Who am I killing? Bad guys? Like, okay. I just think we're all capable of many things. That's what your handwriting would reveal. You know, like, depending on circumstances and depending on your environment and what's going on, I think we could all go down many paths. If you're wondering what's going on, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. And because this is Friday's episode, we are going to be joined later on by an incredible guest, uh, Merlin Tuttle, who will be talking all about bats. He runs a bat conservation and I've never, I mean, it's the best conversation I've ever had. (laughs) At what point can we pivot this into an animal podcast? We're slowly doing it. (laughs) We We should start now just being like, we talk a lot about mental health, sexuality, and animals. (laughs) And we want people with very specific interests in specific animals. If you're a listener Mm -hmm. to this show... And your, like, expertise is, like, the cricket. Or, like, you, like, Mm -hmm. your dad is, like, someone who studies, like, snow leopards. Like, get your info to us. We want to know. And we're chomping at the bit. Much like an animal would. Wow. Like a horse. No, that was very good. That was very good. (laughs) So stick around after the break and we'll be learning all about bats and why they do not deserve their bad reputation. Just between us. Well, 
Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. Our guest this week is Merlin Tuttle. Merlin started his bat career as a teenager, has done field research on every continent where bats live, photographed hundreds of species, founded Bat Conservation International, and has been a key force in changing the way the world perceives bats. Merlin could not stand retirement in 2009 with so much yet to be done, so he founded Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. Thank you so much for being here. We cannot be more excited to talk about bats. (laughs) I'm delighted to be here. So let's start off with the the most obvious question. Why bats? What what made you dedicate your career to bats? Well, I happened to live near a bat cave. That helped. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I found that the bats were doing things that the book said they didn't do. And as a teenager, that was kind of exciting. I went out and observed them night after night. And the book said they didn't migrate, that they lived in one cave year round. But I found that they were only present in the spring and the fall and concluded it made sense. Maybe they migrated. So I got my mother to take me to the Smithsonian so I could meet some of the authors who had written about bats. And uh, they were impressed because I showed up as a teenager with my field notes and two voucher specimens and, (laughs) and told them that I was finding things that were just the opposite, basically, of what had been said in their books. And uh, so they gave me several thousand bat bands, said, go home and see if you can figure out where these bats go. <laughs> and with great luck, I found my banded bats a couple months later, and they had migrated, and they'd gone 100 miles north. <gasps> but in the fall, you expect things to go south. So going north and migrating both, that was pretty unexpected and exciting. And as you can imagine, if a teenager starts making those kinds of exciting discoveries, uh, it tends to make him want to keep doing. What year was this? 59. Okay. And so were you always like interested in science or animals? Like, cause you're saying like there was a bat cave near your house. Were you already kind of interested in like science and zoology? Yes, I managed to terrorize my mother from a young age. <laughs> my, my mother loved nature, but she wasn't exactly fascinated with some of my first interests. At five years old, I was very interested in snakes. <laughs> and I can remember one time I caught a five-foot-long king snake, and I, I was really excited to show it to my father. My mother didn't want to put her fears on me, so she very reluctantly allowed me to put it in a cage to keep it until my father got home and could see it. But the cage wasn't very snake-proof, and it turned out the snake got out. (laughs) And by the time my father came home, I'd already gone to sleep that night. My mother comes walking down the hall, turning the lights out, and steps on my snake, and it wraps around her leg. Oh, my God. (laughs) And in another story she had to put up with, by the time I was a teenager, I was still interested in snakes. In fact, I I still like snakes. I was very proud one day that I and my younger brother managed to catch an almost eight feet long uh, coach whip snake and brought it home. Apparently, I wasn't much better at keeping snakes as a teenager. (laughs) managed to get out. And we searched the whole house for this snake. Couldn't find it anywhere. Is it an eight-foot-long snake? 
seven feet, eight inches. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where was and it? This is in Florida. Oh. We had just moved into a new neighborhood. And uh, about a week after we had failed to find the snake and thought it must have gotten out some way, a committee of neighborhood women came to meet my mother as new neighbors in the community. And they're all sitting around chatting. And now these these coach whips, they have a way of rearing up and looking like a cobra does. <laughs> they're all sitting there talking. And all of a sudden, my mother sees, you know, their eyes get big as saucers. And, <laughs> and everybody bolts for the front door. <laughs> and they almost took the door off its hinges trying to get out. It was a stampede, like kind of yelling fire in a crowded theater. Oh and my, uh, my mother then looked around and this snake had come up behind the couch right behind her. <gasps> See, they're surveying the room. Wow. So, yes, I was interested in nature from a very young age. <laughs> I, I was rearing monarch caterpillars when I was two years old. But, wow. Uh, my family could tell many stories of animals that I brought home getting loose in the house or various <laughs> things happening. So were you, so we're talking about snakes and then bats. Like, were you interested in particularly like animals that have bad reputations? That wasn't something that I thought about and decided mm -hmm. to like bats or like things with bad reputations. But as it turns out, I was pretty good at choosing the ones with a bad reputation because when I was, I started out with snakes. And then when I was a teenager, I practiced falconry. And in mm. those days, everything was a chicken hawk, shoot it. And, uh, you know, hawks are now much more popular as we've made progress with bats too. But uh, in those days, you know, liking hawks wasn't exactly a favored animal. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, in high school, my parents never had to worry about what I was doing after school because I was always out hunting with my trained hawk. That is amazing. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about how bats got such a bad rep and, and why there's such a misconception about them? Does it sort of have to do with like almost like literature and the arts or what's that history? We, we all fear most what we understand least. For example, if you were to go on a flight somewhere today, you might be nervous getting on the plane, but you wouldn't be nervous driving to the airport. You're far more likely to be killed in the taxi on the way to the airport than, than from a plane crash. But we're just, we fear what we don't know. Yeah. In many of the more advanced countries, we live in temperate zones where bats are small and difficult to, to see. In places like the Pacific and Indian Ocean Islands or the Old World Tropics where they're flying foxes or giants with almost six-foot wingspans, they live right out in the open in the trees like birds. People actually eulogize them as folk heroes. It's where bats are small and difficult to see and understand that people tend to be frightened of them. Really? That makes so much sense. Why weren't you scared? Well, I should have been scared of snakes because the first, you know, my first experience with snakes, I'd lived in Hawaii until I was five and there weren't any snakes there. But the first time I ever saw a snake, my mother had taken me out. She loved nature and we were watching butterflies come to a bush and it turned out there was a sizable snake in the bush. And I hardly bounced going home. My mother had me by the hand and I was bouncing along as we ran 
God only knows how I managed to love snakes so much when I started out with a mother that was terrified of them. But in general, my parents were very open about nature and, and loved animals and the outdoors. And so it was not hard for me to take that bent in general. What role do you think that like the Dracula story has had on the impact of like how people view bats? Well, the Dracula story took advantage of people's fear of bats. I don't think it was the focus for the beginning of fear of bats. What's interesting is that we hear about vampires, we think of bats. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that there are vampire legends that have sprung up all over the world. And the first vampire legends didn't even involve bats. They were about atrocities of humans. So bats only got a bad rap of being vampires after Columbus and others came to the New World and found that there was a small bat that that bit animals for a living and drank their blood. But most of the world's vampire legends came from people doing horrible things. Actually, people, you know, there are many peoples from Europe to Africa that like to eat blood, blood sausages, blood mixed with milk, uh, all sorts of bloody things. Yeah. And so what, like, what are major misconceptions about bats, do you think? Well, major misconceptions, one, one big one is that they're mostly rabid or got mm-hmm. other kinds of diseases and will attack you. I have had all kinds of, if it wasn't sad, it'd be hilarious experiences with people thinking they were attacked by bats erroneously. You know, it's very easy if you don't understand anything about bats and you're out in your yard at night and there's a mosquito buzzing around your head and the bat decides to catch it, the bat is coming right at you. And of course, if you don't know about bats, you think you're being attacked. (laughs) You run for cover and think you barely escaped. In fact, I remember he uh, happened to brush a rose bush on his way into the house thinking that a bat was chasing him and he got his arm scratched on the rose bush and then use that as proof the bat had actually attacked him. <laughs> so it's I always find it so funny what animals we have deemed cute and what animals we have deemed like scary or worthy of like killing or, you know, like because I when you see pictures of bats, they kind of look like mice or like they look like their faces are actually a little bit cute. I think they're well, so cute. Yeah, It depends on which one you're looking at and what your perspective is. When I speak with children, you know, if if I show them a picture of certain bats that look, you know, really wild, weird, you know, if I don't say anything to precondition their thoughts, they'll say, oh, gross, yuck. But if I ask them first, how many of you like dinosaurs? Oh, yeah, you know, they like dinosaurs. And uh, then I say, well, you know, there are bats that are just as incredible as any dinosaur. And the dinosaurs died out and the incredible bats are still here. And I show them a bat. Oh, wow. And they love it. <laughs> and, you know, and the bat can have the strangest face in the world. And they love it. It's, it's a matter of how they perceive what they're thinking at the time they see the first bat. We, we generally, you know, in our society think, for better or for worse, that big eyes, small nose, lean body, you know, those those are all attractive features. And yet people love elephants. Mm -hmm. I mean, elephants got small eyes, big ears, big nose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
but uh, it, it's it's all how we're conditioned to perceive. Yeah, I don't think that it's necessarily productive to be like this animal is ugly so ew or like this animal looks a certain way or is dark colored so i don't you know i don't a- like it ask somebody who owns a bulldog they think he's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> oh my god in fact i personally think that the bats with the weirdest faces they're the ones that get me the most excited oh uh, why well why is because they are at least perceived to be the most sophisticated. I one time gave a program for the crew that developed Sidewinder missiles and the lunar landing rover. And they were uh, all through my talk. They were, can you show us that bed a little longer? What's that thing <laughs> sticking out of so-and-so? You know, that, that must, and they would be talking in a physics language that I didn't even understand, but speculating about all the, incredible features these bats had for navigation. And actually the Don Griffin at Harvard who discovered bat echolocation uh, originally, he speculated that, well, he didn't just speculate, he plain said that bats on a watt per watt, ounce per ounce basis, that their echolocation systems were probably billions of times more efficient than anything humans had developed. Wow. wow. And I have a friend who took off, I think it was one or two years sabbatical to help the Navy develop special navigation. And uh, right now, you know, it's not one of my proud parts of the bat world, but, uh, you know, the military is spending millions of dollars, I understand, developing robot bats that can be flown into <laughs> enemy territory and, and navigate like a bat. What? Oh my God. Can we talk a little <laughs> bit about ecolocation and, and like how it works and what they're up to? Well, it's kind of like, have you ever been in a canyon somewhere and if you yell, you hear your echo come back? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what bats are doing. They're yelling and they do it two ways. One type of bat, and there's a lot of them that fall in this category, they yell everywhere they go and they listen for the echoes coming back from their yells. And then there's another type of bat that sneezes to make its you know, equivalently the sound comes from its nose and then the echoes bounce back the nose transmitters are called whispering bats because they're obviously a sneeze doesn't get you as much information from as far away as a yell does mm. but they're bats with we call it frequency modulated calls where they start high and each call covers a whole range of frequencies And those are used when you're navigating near foliage or other obstacles that you need quick information to avoid running into something. And they also use that type of call when they're in hot pursuit of an insect. But when they're out in the open, just looking for an insect a long ways away, they'll switch to what we call a constant frequency call that is louder and reaches further and Now, some of the really cool things that intrigue me are the fact that insects, apparently some of the earliest reasons for developing hearing were trying to evade bats. And (laughs) insects, many kinds of insects listen for bats. And there's actually a situation I think you'd find pretty interesting that moths don't have ears like we do, but they have what we call tympani that listen, they can listen with like ears. 
And there's a type of mite that inf- that gets on parasitizes moths, and it always goes for their ear, their tympanum. And this mite had to evolve a special system to avoid getting eaten by bats because it was eating the moths' ears. <laughs> so, so these moths now, or the the mites that get on the moths, they leave what we call a pheromone trail to the ear that they parasitize. So if another mite gets on the same moth, it follows the pheromone trail and goes to the same ear. So they always leave at least one ear free. And that's been scientifically documented to help the moth so it has a significantly less chance of being caught by a bat. Oh my God. Is it because bats can't see very well? Why do they use echolocation? No, no, bats see very, very well. They just have something in addition. I mean, we we wish we had that kind of sophistication. Because it allows them to, to be able to understand the surroundings better? Well, you see, a bat with echolocation, with sound alone, can see everything we see except color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like if you've got an obstacle in front of you, you don't necessarily know if that obstacle is hard or soft if you haven't experienced it before. Mm-hmm. But a bat would know from the way his bounce back echolocation would tell him whether that was a hard object or a soft object. Wow. One, one other thing that might interest you, you ask about bat vision. I have trained bats. I can train a bat faster, do more things probably than you can train a dog to do. Really? And I routinely have trained bats so that I could point at something that, where I wanted them to go, and they would go to where, where I pointed. And I've even trained them so that, for example, years ago, I was doing a film for the BBC on my frog eating bat research, bats that listen, and they know all the calls of, a fro- of frogs in the jungle, and so they avoid attacking the poisonous ones or the ones that are too big to be eaten. And so I was photographing, I did an article for National Geographic in the January, I think, 1982 issue on frog eating bats. And I wanted the bats to catch a certain frog uh, on command so that I could get fabulous pictures of it. Uh And I trained the bats so that uh, they would, I could point to a frog in a pond that I wanted them to catch and they wouldn't go to catch it until I took my hand back and they heard actually that I trained them for the BBC as well as for myself. I started telling you about the BBC. I did it for National Geographic for stills and I'd point and then I'd like that and the bat would know to come. Well, the BBC wanted to do a film on these and when they got there, I had my bats all trained and thought everything was ready, but it turned out I was horrified when they got there. Their high-speed camera made so much noise, the bats couldn't hear me calling them to come. Oh. And I thought, oh, my God, now we've blown it. But it took only 15 minutes to train those bats so that I could point and I wanted them to catch a certain frog, take my hand back, and they knew not to come, that I wouldn't let them get the frog as long as my hand was there. And when my hand came back, then they still wouldn't come until they heard the high-speed movie camera start to whine. And when that started to whine, then they knew it was okay to come catch the frog. 
Wow. How do you train a bat? Well, I learned to train bats basically when I was a teenager and didn't know I was learning it yet, but same techniques that a falconer uses to train falcons largely. Like what? Rewards. Mm. In, in fact, I've often told mothers that they need to learn my bats 101 course for training their kids. <laughs> I have a video showing a tiny little bat that weighed less than a nickel trying to train me. <laughs> and, and it's clear that he's trying to train me too. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. Okay, so they, well, we will have to watch this afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So wait, so they so they it works similar to like to like any sort of pet where you train them to what what treat are you using? Depends on what the bat eats. What do they eat? For frog eating bats, I use chopped up minnows. They're they're carnivores and I could adapt them to going for bits of minnow for a reward. Uh, for fruit eating bat, I'd use little bits of banana or something like that that it liked. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the different types of bats? Like how much is there a variation between the different types? Huge. There are more than 1,400 kinds of bats in the world. They range from little bats away a third less than a U.S. penny to giants with almost six-foot wingspans. Wow. And they, they come from bats that are like ghost bats of Latin America or snow white. They're not albino. They're just snow white. We have a bat here in Texas that's truly incredible, probably the most spectacular mammal of North America. It is uh, jet black on its back with a perfectly symmetrical design of three white spots on its back. Its underside is snow white and it has a black collar. <gasps> and its ears are as long as its whole head and body, huge ears. And the ears and the wings are pink translucent. Wow. What is it called? Spotted bat. Wow. Is that your favorite one? It's hard to say what my favorite bat is. There's so many really cool bats. Incidentally, you're talking about echolocation and, and insects avoiding echolocating bats. The pallet bat has a really incredible echolocation. It uses ultra low frequencies, while most bats are using calls that at least pass by about 40 kilohertz. The spotted bat is using very low frequency calls, I think well below 10 kilohertz. Wow. And so what happens is the moths have had to tune their ears for listening to about 40 kilohertz because that's where most of the bats, the frequency most hunting bats are using. But the spotted bat is like a stealth bomber or a stealth fighter plane. It is using these low frequencies that the moths can't hear. So it wow. can fly right up and grab the moth without it knowing it's there. And you might ask how that works. Well, because the vast majority of bats have the high frequency, the, the spotted bat is a relatively rare bat. If it were a dominant bat, it couldn't get away with its stealth approach. The bats, would, the moths would retune their ears and they wouldn't get away with that hunting style anymore. Wow. So, okay. So what is the evolutionary purpose of bats, like ecologically? Because I think we hear a lot about like, oh, we have to save the honeybee. Like the honeybee is, you know, this kind of like part of the ecosystem that is super important. What When you run like a bat conservation, like what is the reason for that beyond your own affinity for them? 
Well, I've always said, like them or not, we need them. Without bats, you could practically be buried in insect pests. Bats are saving an estimated roughly 23 billion U.S. dollars a summer in pest control for crops. Right here in the Texas Hill Country, the Parks and Wildlife Department estimates they're saving $1.4 billion a summer in protecting of crops. But that's just the beginning. A lot of people take a nicer view of bats when they find out they wouldn't have tequila or mezcal without bats. <laughs> why? How is that? Yeah, why is that the case? The plants from which all uh, mezcal and tequila are produced are pollinated by bats. Whoa. Just bats? There are hundreds of species of agaves, mm -hmm. but most of them are highly bat dependent. And yeah. you'll, you'll see bees and hummingbirds going to them, but they're kind of cleaning up the leftovers in the morning. By the time the sun comes up and they're active, uh, there's very little pollination going on. The real action is at night. And people should see our, our YouTube video, uh, the importance of bats. Oh, we'll link to all of that. And it'll it'll show many of these things. Now, I mean, most of us have had a banana not too long past. The world supply of bananas is all coming from plants that originally were bat dependent for pollination. And in fact, even now, bats are keeping those ancestral plants healthy through their pollination. And were we to lose bats and those ancestral bananas, we could be in serious trouble without the genetic material to withstand disease and things that could strike against our bananas. And if, if you go to Southeast Asia, the king of fruits, by far the most popular fruit, the durian, is worth billions annually in sales. And it's so dependent upon bats for pollination that it, you can't produce it even in an orchard without bats to visit the flowers. And wow. I, I could go on and on. I mean, I, we could spend two hours just talking about bat pollination. Why do they live in caves altogether? Is there, are they like communities? Do they, do they, is it like a family or like a neighborhood? Many bats don't live in groups, but uh, the ones that we're most familiar with, they can form very big colonies. For example, in uh, Bracken Cave here in Texas that I spent 20 years getting protected, 10 million or more free-tail bats live in one cave. <gasps> wow. And that cave would probably be too cool for rearing young, uh, except that by having so many in there, they cluster together and their body temperatures are at about 102 degrees Fahrenheit. And they heat the whole cave. So the cave, if you go in, the cave is close to 100 degrees. It's a very miserable place to go. Uh, but the, the bats are heating it. And uh, you can actually, as you walk up to a, toward a wall, it feels like you're approaching a radiant heater. Wow. But more than that, the bats have social systems and we only can scratch the surface of what we know so far, but what we can tell you is that they even adopt orphans. Really? And that males have their own little harem groups and try to guard them against other males or who knows what else. 
Uh, we know that, for example, in flying foxes that we can watch better outdoors, the mothers will take their pups and leave them in groups away from the daytime roost because they're afraid of pythons or things coming and catching the young while they're gone. And then there'll be babysitting mothers that uh, watch out for the pups. And I heard uh, Gabby say, oh, you'll love this. There's a woman in Australia who hand reared a, a pup of a mother who the mother got electrocuted on high power lines. And, and so this woman reared the pup. And when the pup grew up, she gradually let it go back to the wild out of her backyard. And that winter, the bat migrated with the other flying foxes. These are big bats with three, four foot wingspans. It migrated with the other bats in the, in the winter. And the next spring, this lady was out in her backyard one night, and all of a sudden this huge bat comes flying down and lands on her shoulder and is just licking her and vocalizing just like, uh, just like a dog would be excited to see if you'd been away on vacation for a week. Wow. And, and so the bat not only started coming back to visit with her each evening, but pretty soon she caught on that the bat was pregnant. She was going to be a grandma. And when the bat gave birth, I wouldn't tell this story except that two PhD level biologists both vouched that they saw this happen. But the mother bat would bring her pup and give it to her former benefactor to keep while she went to eat. And then she'd come back and pick up the pup. (laughs) So they... So they have family, like they know each other, they recognize each other, they have family, they recognize family. Not that long ago, there was a study that showed that bats have social systems strikingly similar to those of higher primates. Oh. They they develop long-term friendships, they travel together, they even adopt orphans. Oh my gosh. Are they able to recognize humans? So like the the bats that you work with, they become familiar with you and know who you yes. are? Yes, yes. There's a, several cases in Australia where women have reared uh, orphan bats. And I know of one case where the woman moved to Europe after a while and she left her, her bat with a friend the bat in the early days they didn't know how to rear them that well and they didn't feed them enough of the right nutrients and they would get rickets so they couldn't fly naturally and so they'd have to be pets of humans for their lives and uh, the woman was gone for 10 years and when she came back the bat recognized her voice And I know of another case where a gal living in Sydney, Australia, reared a bat and uh, gave it to a friend to keep because, again, it it couldn't fly that well. And the friend lived on the edge of a national park so the bat could play out in the trees in the backyard and get fed by the woman. Well, its original benefactor would bring it chocolate for Christmas every year. (laughs) And I'm telling you, if you want to get a flying fox in Australia to do almost anything, just offer it chocolate. <laughs> and uh, so she uh, would come to bring it chocolates. And when, she, when the bat would be in the backyard, would hear her speaking to the other woman in the front yard. 
and it would like have a fit screaming, wanting to get to the woman who's bringing her chocolates. Oh my God. <laughs> so did, how long is their, their lifespan? I'm sure it's different for different bats, but like what's the shortest and what's the longest? Well, I don't know. The, sh- the shortest is probably when somebody kills one. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the longest, uh, we know of bats that weigh less than a 25 cent piece that have lived 43 years in wow. the wild. In the wild. That's the equivalent of a human living to be 100. Okay. okay. But, but keep, keep this in mind. A 40-year-old bat is doing the equivalent of a 100-year-old human still being able to run sprints through obstacle courses. Wow. I mean, it's still having to go out and chase down food every night. Yeah. Right. And and so why are bats in danger right now? Like what's going on in the world that's making it so hard for bats to, to survive? And, and why are they in so much danger? Well, one of the things that puts them in a great deal of danger is just our unfounded fears, which mm-hmm. are too frequently taken advantage of by people who profit from human fear of bats. I mean, throughout my entire career, clear back when I was first starting studying bats 60 years ago, I encountered case after case where people had deliberately destroyed large colonies of bats. Uh, When I was in graduate school, one of my study colonies, the cave owner, Department of Health people came by and told him that, that the bats were dangerous, they're rabid, and and he uh, went out and poured kerosene in his cave and lit it on fire. What? And and I know of cases where hundreds of thousands, I could show you pictures of piles of skeletons after somebody either shut the cave and trapped them inside or burned it. So even in my earliest days of studying bats, I was aware that they were really terribly victimized. And the interesting thing is the bat that I was studying at that point, the gray myotis, to this day, we still don't know of a single human who's ever contracted any disease from that bat. And yet they were being slaughtered by the thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, by Department of Health people warning them that they're dangerous. And, you know, when I first came to Austin, Texas, where I live now, I moved here in part because when I just decided to devote full time to conserving bats, Austin was the world center for scary stories about bats. Hundreds of thousands of bats were moving into our Congress Avenue bridge in the newly created crevices beneath the bridge. And health officials were warning that they were mostly rabid and dangerous, would attack people. I managed to show them differently. And today we have a million and a half bats that have never once in decades ever attacked or contract given a disease to any of the millions of people that have, I mean, Austin is now world famous for its bat flights. People come from. I saw the bridge. I went to the bridge with the bats in Austin. I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. And they're, they can be quite spectacular. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was recently, uh, well, there've been recent, all kinds of both TV and new print media stories claiming that if a bat just flies over and poops on you that uh, it can give you Ebola. You know, that is that that is complete bull. There's not a known case in world history of a bat flying over and pooping or pissing on somebody and giving them a disease. If that was the case, we'd be dying like flies in Austin. 
They were saying that initially when when coronavirus started, they were saying that it came from bats, which like, where did that even come from? You know, there's two things. Bats have a couple of big problems. One, they're the easiest mammals to quickly sample if you're studying viruses or something and you want to get a quick paper out. I mean, you can go down to a cave and set a trap that I invented and catch a thousand bats in 10 minutes. Wow. And so it's easy to sample them. Just think if, if I had a hypothesis that, that COVID was coming from, let's say, foxes or raccoons, it could take me a long time to catch enough foxes or raccoons to get my sample. Mm-hmm. But if I speculate bats, I can go have my sample and have a pub out you know, maybe next week. Mm-hmm. And there would always be people that would be very sympathetic for the animal and say, no, you can't do that. But if you're going to kill bats, you can do it because they don't have a whole lot of friends. And you can. And the stories we hear now about COVID and a lot of these things, let me point out that take the ones, the diseases you most hear associated with bats, Ebola, COVID, SARS, MERS. Not one of those diseases I just mentioned has been the virus has not been found in a bat. And there's not a single case in which it has been documented to be transmitted from a bat to a human. And yet we hear it almost as a fact that bats transmit all these diseases. That's pure speculation. And it's based on the fact that you can find viruses in bats that they'll report. This is a common. Oh, we found a new virus is 96 percent genomically, genetically identical to, let's say, SARS or COVID or or Ebola. But that is absolutely meaningless. And any virologist saying that is either a liar or is uh, uh, incredibly naive about his profession. Because guess what? We're 96% genetically identical to chimpanzees, but I don't think (laughs) any of us are having any trouble knowing the difference between a human and a chimp. (laughs) But you see, bats have this problem that they're an ancient group of animals that has been around for a very long time. And so naturally, a lot of viruses are found in bats. The viruses found in more recent mammals are going to be related. And most people have no idea that a 96% relationship is almost meaningless. Mm -hmm. It's just speculated that these things are coming from bats and, and these facts are used. It's a terrible misrepresentation of fact, but it's incredibly lucrative. Our U.S. government has allocated billions just to study one of those diseases. And the people studying them get to go out and have fun traveling all over the world catching bats. It's easy. They don't have to deal with lions or tigers or other things that might have the disease. So between being easy to sample, being that most people fear them anyway because they don't know anything about them. And then you tie viruses that people know so little about with bats that they know little about. Mm-hmm. And you got the perfect mother load story. And whatever the me- the virologist says to the uh, me- news media, it gets even cranked up worse because it sells readership and viewership if you come up with a really scary headline. Mm-hmm. And bats have just, I mean, it's just so wild that it's 
we've chosen an animal to be like, this animal equals Satan and Dracula and Halloween and spooky. Um, yeah. And like, it's all, it seems like branding or like a publicity PR problem. Well, they do have a PR problem. Uh, let me tell you, there are billions of dollars at stake in research grants for, you've heard of virus hunters? No. Well, these, these are virologists who are out scanning the world for new viruses that could kill us, okay. could cause the next pandemic. And let me point out that when I speak ill of virologists, I don't mean virologists in general. In every field, there are those who would take advantage of us by distorting the truth. I don't mean to be maligning virologists in general. In fact, some of the world's leading virologists have come out and said that hunting for viruses that might kill us is a waste of time. There are so many viruses out there, we don't even know about probably 1% of the world's viruses. But like bats, we only hear about the ones that cause problems. Mm. And there are a few viruses that can kill us. But, you know, we have more viruses in our own bodies than we have cells. That should tell us something. Viruses are either largely benign or maybe even essential to our very survival, but we only hear about the ones that kill us. So if somebody mentions that bats have viruses, oh my God, that's really bad. Those, those are things that attack people and then they've got viruses that they can bring. It's very sellable when you wanna raise a big mm -hmm. lot of money to do your research, just tie bats and viruses together and you got it made in heaven. They're like scapegoats. When I started my career, almost everybody in America knew that most, if not all, bats were rabid. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's what you think. And that's been grossly exaggerated. But finally, I published the first review paper that really put it in perspective that bats were the least of our problems when it came to rabies. But... Uh, Back then, everybody was told that most bats were rabid. But the truth is that in all the United States and Canada combined, we only on average have one to two humans annually out of hundreds of millions that die of rabies from any cause. Let alone and, bats. And, and bats are... All you got to do to avoid rabies from a bat or almost any of these other diseases, just don't handle them. <laughs> you know, if, if you find a bat that's on the ground or where you can catch it, it's probably sick. Common sense. We learn when we're kids, don't kick beehives. Don't run into a yard with a strange dog. We learn these things. Why not just learn that you don't pick up a bat that's you know, feel bad about that it's got a problem, but don't pick it up and handle it or, you know, let it bite you. And it might bite in self-defense thinking, you know, after all, we have bats have much more to fear from us than we do from them. Yeah, They don't go around killing us. We kill them by the hundreds of thousands at a time. What yeah. should you do if you're like just a, let's say me and Allison are walking around. We come across like bats and we're like nervous what or what what do we what should we do like to not is it like we, we should just act normal and like not be like oh my god bats and start screaming 
Well, you might scare the bats. Exactly. So like what, <laughs> what what is the correct or like, let's say we do find like if you find a bat injured or something like what, what are the, let's say two, what's two scenarios. Yeah. What's the protocol? You might call a, a, a rehabber mm-hmm. who might be able to help the bat. For one thing, just, you know, if you've got children or pets, they need to know better than to, you know, one thing you can do is if you don't have help and you find a bat that's grounded, you can get a broom or a shovel or something and, and get it up on it and carry it to a place where it will not be found by children or pets and let it go and and hope that it survives. Uh, many of the bats that people see each year that are grounded are actually mother uh, red bats that have multiple pups. Most bats only produce one pup a year, but the red bats will produce up to four. And during a storm, they sometimes they roost right out in the open in trees, and so they'll get blown down, and then the mother can't lift all those four to take off from the ground. And if you find bats in that situation, all they need is to be, you, you can handle them with gloves on, but I'd recommend just being very careful. And look, let, let's, let's put it this way. Out of bats that you find on the ground or out in the open, but 95% of those bats aren't rabid. Mm-hmm. Let's just not take a chance. If you happen to get bitten by one that is rabid, you don't do anything about it. And, you know, and even if you're foolish enough to pick up a sick bat and you get re- get bitten, you still, all you got to do is call your doctor and take the uh, rabies vaccine. Yeah. So don't go running into a cave screaming and <laughs> you're, you're bothering the bats. They're not bothering you. Well, you run into a cave screaming, you may have bats all over you because you'll panic them and they can't all fly at once and they may actually be on you. And then, then, then you will think you were attacked when you weren't attacked at all. They were trying to escape you. Right. Mm-hmm. So sort of just like let them be, kind of ignore them. Like They're not going to attack you. They're not going to bother you. And give them chocolate. <laughs> they're some of the most sophisticated animals on the planet. And, you know, just enjoy watching them. Yeah, that's amazing. This has been so informative and and wonderful, and we're hoping that we're we're destigmatizing bats and we're we're trying to repair their good name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break, but stick around for America's favorite game show, Hypotheticals. game show. It's called Hypotheticals. And you and Gabby are my contestants. And I give you like a series of hypothetical situations and you tell me your interpretation or what you would do. And then I just decide whether or not I like your answer. So (laughs) (laughs) there's no real rules here. (laughs) The first game is called Are They an Alien or Just Rude? You have an important corporate job. You get called into your boss's office for a meeting, and the moment you enter the room, your boss turns off the lights so they can concentrate without having to stare into your soul. Is this person an alien or just rude? Maybe just naive. (laughs) What? (laughs) Why are they naive? Thinking that they can see into your soul in a dark room. 
might be considered naive. No, they have to they have to turn the lights off so they can't see into your soul. And they oh, think they okay. can see into your soul through your eyes. So they don't want to be able to see your eyes. Okay, I would still consider that naive, and I'd consider it naive to think that you could be an alien. <laughs> oh, okay. So Merlin's a scientist and does not believe in aliens. So check, check, check. Um, I think this person is rude. I think they're doing some sort of weird corporate power play, some sort of like thing that they read about in like a business magazine on how to like treat your employees, and I don't like it. Well, I'm sorry to tell you guys, it was an alien and they actually can see into your soul through their eyes, your eyes. And it's very distracting. They wanted to get down to business. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So they're an alien. They can see into people's souls and they've decided to take an office job. They're very greedy. <laughs> it's a greedy alien. <laughs> wow. Well, Marilyn doesn't believe in aliens, so forget it. Well... You must, right? That there is not impossible that there's an alien somewhere out there, but that I'm likely to see one is pretty unlikely. <laughs> you got to get a corporate job. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, twenty-seven, is about to marry a man with a bad temper. You don't want the wedding to happen, but no one will listen to you. So you decide to go to the wedding dressed in an elephant Halloween costume. When the groom sees your seemingly disrespectful outfit, he gets so mad he calls off the wedding. Are you a terrible parent? This is a tough one. <laughs> no, you're just a creative parent. <laughs> right? Because you're not technically doing anything. You're just wearing a costume and then he gets set off. Very creative idea. <laughs> I say that you are a good parent. I agree with Merlin. Very creative problem solving. It sucks because the wet you're already at the wedding, so like you definitely paid a bunch of money and like it's called mm. off and like that kind of sucks. But and the <laughs> elephant costume was very expensive. Oh, it was. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But it was worth it. You <laughs> saved your daughter. <laughs> but you were you're in debt. <laughs> No, you're rich because of your corporate job. I'm the alien? No, many people work for corporations. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, that was correct. So you are actually an incredibly smart, wonderful parent was the correct answer. So good job, guys. <laughs> okay, our final game. We haven't done this one in a long time, but I'm bringing it back. Is this a date? Okay, is this a date? Okay. Your friend from college who you haven't seen in ages invites you to dinner. When you show up, they hand you a single long-stemmed rose as a belated birthday gift. Is this a date? Your birthday was six months earlier. It's a beautiful rose. M Merlin, is this a date? Now you're really out of my field. <laughs> I've been married for a long time. <laughs> I wouldn't consider it a date. No? You, you would just be like, this is normal for someone to hand me a rose? Whether it's a date or not doesn't determine whether it's normal or not. <laughs> but you would you would be like, let's say, OK, so you weren't married. You went on. A, you went out with someone that you used to know. They bring you a rose. Is it a date? A rose makes it seem like it's a date. But they say it's for your birthday. That was six months earlier. That makes no sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Do you guys want to know the answer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was a bribe. 
a bribe. Why? (laughs) Because they actually want you to to do some corporate espionage for them. (laughs) And they bribed me with a single rose. Yeah, it's a beautiful rose. It would have to be damn beautiful to work as a bribe. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work, but that was their plan. Why is all of this about my corporate job? I don't know. I felt like this one should have a theme. (laughs) Oh, my God. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, we like to ask our guests if they had a good time um, and how they would rate us as podcast hosts. Did you have a good time? I had a wonderful time. Next time you're in Austin, let's have a date. Uh, we'll bring the roses. <laughs> we'll bring the roses. You bring us to the Bat Bridge. <laughs> okay, that's a deal. That's amazing. So where can people find out more about your organization? At Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation, an organization I founded to help set the record straight about bats and their values. Ah, thank amazing. you so much. Thank you so much. And we'll have a link in the description so everyone can check out what he's up to, and save some bats. Thank you so much to Merlin Tuttle for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dogs production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can find clips of this podcast at youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And you can follow this podcast on Instagram at JBU Podcast. Also, follow me at Gabby Road and Allison at Allison Raskin and at Emotional Support Lady. And uh, our merch is at gabbydunn.com slash shop. And Allison's Patreon is called Emotional Support Lady. Forever Dog.